Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, you'll find that on page 1180 of the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there, page 1180, which is 1 Timothy 6. As we are coming to the end of our study of 1 Timothy, maybe it's a good time to ask ourselves, what is this letter all about? How might we summarize it and keep it organized in our minds? Well, for me, two descriptions uh, come immediately to mind. It is a letter that is equally personal and pastoral, personal and pastoral. In other words, it was written uh, to Timothy as a real man with real problems, trying to be a faithful Christian. But it is also undeniably written to a man in a pastoral calling. It is personal and pastoral. It is about the heart and it is about the church. The personal dynamic of the letter comes from the fact that is not written to a congregation, unlike most of Paul's other letters, but rather it's written to an individual. And not just any individual, but Paul calls Timothy his own spiritual son. To grasp how deep that relationship really was, bear in mind that Paul had taken Timothy as a young adult and circumcised him himself, much as a Jewish father would have taken his infant son. So it's no surprise that the letter is so direct, challenging, and personal. It often sounds like a father talking to his son, and it should sound that way. For us today, this personal dimension, I hope you feel this way, it makes it a real joy to read. Much of what Paul says to Timothy is directly applicable to our lives, regardless of our role in the church. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a pastor or an elder to be greatly impacted by this letter. In fact, when you read it privately, it can at times sound like Paul is speaking directly to you. That was my own experience as I read this letter carefully several years ago, and that is what led me to start this sermon series. The Spirit moved Paul to write this, knowing that millions of Christians would read it and read it as a personal letter and find in it personal admonition, personal guidance. But it's not just personal. It is also pastoral. We must not ignore that dimension of this letter. It is, as the church has always said, a pastoral letter. Timothy has a unique calling, a mission, And Paul considers that calling critical to the health of the Ephesian church. I think the great theologian John Owen gives the gist of this when he writes, quote, Timothy was chosen by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to be a pattern and an example for all ministers of the gospel in all coming generations. The passion or the intensity of the Apostle Paul in his charges to Timothy shows the importance and the necessity of this duty so that the church would continue to be the pillar and ground of the truth. The letter carries within it 
a high view of the church, a high view of gospel ministry in the church. And that is why the two famous soaring doxologies in this letter both come. Have you noticed this? Both of them come as Paul describes pastoral ministry. First, as Paul reflects on his own calling, his unexpected calling, he wrote, quote, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in our text today, as Paul brings his last charge to Timothy to its climax, he breaks into doxology once again. He writes, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And that is where we are today at the end of a letter that is both personal and pastoral. A letter where Paul directs Timothy both as a son and as a minister of the gospel. So much is at stake, both for the man Timothy, personally, individually, and for the church that is under his care. In our passage today, that urgency reaches its climax with Paul urging Timothy to fight the good fight and to take hold of everlasting life. With those words of introduction, you please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll begin in verse 11 of chapter 6. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do turn now to your word and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, our hearts would be open to receive it with joy and that through your word this morning, we would be equipped for every good work and for the battle that rages around us. Strengthen now your people and your servant that we might fight the good fight for the faith. Do all these things, Father, so that your Son might be glorified on the earth, for we pray and ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the little Christian college that I attended, I was labeled a Calvinist pretty early on in my experience. Now, I did not set out to get that label. 
I much prefer to be just called a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a disciple. But it came. <laughs> the label was applied by others to me. And for some people, that label made me a little dangerous. For others, it was intriguing. And this was especially the case for the most beautiful woman on campus, who later married me in part because of the robust theology my Calvinist parents had instilled in me. To comfort me in my relative theological isolation, a wise friend of mine would counsel me that when someone made a comment about my Calvinism, I should just reply cheerfully by saying, oh, so you've read Calvin. This, he was sure, would end almost all conversations because most people didn't know anything, of course, about Calvin. For example, most people don't realize that Calvin was one of the greatest, most prolific church planters in all of Christian history. But even more striking to me is the label his seminary carried. The Genevan Seminary was called, quote, Calvin's School of Death because so many men who graduated from it were horrifically martyred for their faith. Calvin himself repeatedly sought to return to France and face martyrdom, but was held back by faithful elders in Geneva. So the words I'm about to quote to you now from Calvin, from one of his sermons on this text, they're not cheap words. These words were spoken by a man who faced death by being burned alive throughout his entire life and lost many dear friends to this horrific death. Here's what he writes. Everyone should know that since God has called us to his service, he intends to train us for the fight. He could easily have kept Satan bridled, but he allows Satan to act we walk here among thorns. We must therefore get used to fighting or else we will fail. Brothers and sisters, every single thing you do for God in this life will be opposed. Every attempt to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord will be opposed. Every attempt to share the gospel with a neighbor, a lost family member will be opposed. Every good endeavor will have an element of war mixed into it. The longer you are a Christian, the more you will be aware of this reality. As Calvin said, God is training us to fight and we walk among thorns. That being said, we also need to be awake to the reality that we are designed for this. Calvin says, this is what God is doing. He's training us to fight the good fight. These days, especially culturally, I'm reminded of an old paratrooper saying, apparently, from what I know from history, paratroopers, because they were often dropped in behind enemy lines, would encourage each other with a little reminder. They would say, we are paratroopers. We are meant to be surrounded. Today, I use that to remind myself, my students, and my congregation, that as we as Christians slide to the margin of culture, 
We, we are regaining our ultimate identity. We are Christians. We are meant to be surrounded. And that was Timothy's situation. Attacks could and did come from every direction. His heart, the church itself, the world, everything. And these verses are Paul's rally cry to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith while surrounded. And the same is true for us. But take hope. Take hope. We are being trained by God for this kind of warfare. In our passage this morning, Paul rallies Timothy to the fight on three key battlegrounds. First, he will meet the fight in his own personal character. Second, he will meet the fight in his faith, in what he believes, his personal confession. And third, in his testimony to the world. So his life, his faith, and his witness. Paul begins once again, as he often has done in this letter, with Timothy's own character, his life before God. Look with me again at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This verse is very, very emphatic. Emphatic. The ESV tries to capture that with the words, Oh, oh, man of God. This is incredible drama here in this verse. Man of God here is not just a way of saying that Timothy was a godly man, like I might say about you or you might say about me. Instead, this is actually a title. It's a title from the Old Testament, especially reserved for God's prophets and for Moses, especially above everyone else. This title given by Paul to Timothy designates Timothy as a man endowed by the Holy Spirit to lead the church by delivering to that church the word of God. And yet notice that Paul does not hesitate to warn the man of God, to call him to personal holiness, to challenge him. He does that in a very old and wonderful way. It's a staple both of Old Testament wisdom and Greek philosophy to call a person to both flee and to pursue. To flee and to pursue. To flee what is evil and to pursue what is good. Psalm 1 is the greatest example of this in the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight, his pursuit, is the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. The blessed man or woman leaves the counsel of the wicked and pursues the law of God day and night. Our lives are as much defined by what we avoid as by what we pursue. For the Jew in the Old Testament, this meant, above all, refusing to stand with sinners and pursuing the law day and night. For the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, it meant denying self and seeking virtue. But for us as Christians, it has taken on an even more specific form. We do not simply pursue the law much less a platonic category like virtue. No, we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we must be conformed to him, both in his death and life. 
And so when Paul says here, O man of God, flee these things, I submit to you that that's just another way of saying, be crucified to these things. And when Paul says, pursue these things, he means be made alive, be resurrected to these things in Christ. Paul in Colossians 3 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, pursue the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And again in Romans 6, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. When we connect all these passages, we see that the battle is in our personal life, in our character, and that it won't be won without the scriptural pattern of flight and pursuit by dying and being raised with Christ. Paul also tells us what this new life will look like as we pursue and as we die to sin. He writes, pursue, Timothy, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In a very short way, righteousness is obedience to God's will. It's holiness of life. Godliness, favorite word in 1 Timothy, is something like the call to fear the Lord, to give the Lord the devotion, the worship he deserves. Faith and love are often patterned together by Paul. Faith is resting in the promises of God without reservation. Love is shorthand for the taking of that faith into every relationship in your life so that faith is enacted, lived out in relationship with other people. And lastly, I think the great minister John Stott is on the right track when he says that steadfastness is patience in difficult circumstances and gentleness is patience with difficult people. It would have been so easy for Paul in this last charge to have filled the pages of this letter with nothing but condemnation and criticism for Timothy's opponents. And of course he does that when he needs to. But I'm struck, and I hope you are struck too, at how focused Paul remains throughout this letter on Timothy's own life and character. As if to say to his spiritual son, O man of God, don't forget, don't ever forget, that the biggest threat to your ministry is your own traitor's heart. It is so incredibly easy to deceive ourselves into believing that our biggest issue right now is our disobedient child or our imperfect spouse or a difficult boss at work. Those may indeed be real issues in your life, but they are not the primary battleground of your life. War always begins in the heart. You might remember when in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He's in this city and he's doing an unusual number of incredible miracles, which would contribute to the founding of this very church. In the middle of that ministry, Luke tells us about seven men of a Jewish priest who decided to invoke Jesus' name in order to do some of the works that Paul had done. And so they went into a demonic situation 
and they tried casting out the demon using Jesus' name without really knowing Jesus themselves. The demon's response is chilling. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then we are told the demon assaulted them, sending them running for their lives from the house. This, you see, is the disaster that Timothy, the man of God, must avoid. He cannot go out and do God's work without God first doing a work within him. He cannot rely on simply being right doctrinally or simply using the name of Jesus as a magic word of power. No, the word of Jesus must come from a true man of God or woman of God. On several occasions in early ministry especially, I was routed. I was routed because I stepped into an intense ministry situation and I was not prepared in my own life. Has this happened to you? The first battleground for the fight of faith is always our own lives. So Paul can say to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, flee and pursue. The second battleground is Timothy's doctrine or his faith. I think that's what Paul has in mind in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is using here two athletic metaphors or pictures. Fight the good fight is probably a reference to boxing or kind of boxing type metaphor. And then the idea of taking hold of eternal life is throughout Paul, the language of the race, of the Olympic race. We know this especially because Paul uses these exact images to describe himself. In his last letter, his dying letter, 2 Timothy, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When Paul wrote that, he was facing martyrdom. His life was almost over. And so he could say, the fight is over. The race is won. I have kept the faith. As Americans, when we read verse 12, uh, we tend to read this idea into it that what Paul means here is something about morale. You know, keep the faith, meaning keep your spirits up. But you notice in the text, it's not keep a faith, but keep a hold of the faith, the gospel, the truth. And that is what he's asking him here to do, to contend for doctrine, for faith, for the truth of the gospel. So then Paul is not saying to Timothy as he prepares to die, don't worry, I'm keeping my spirits up. Rather, he's saying my journey has come to an end. I fought, I have run, I have kept the faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil have taken all their best shots at Paul. He had been stoned, he had been beaten, he had been imprisoned, he had been shipwrecked. And yet none of these, by God's grace, could shake him loose from the eternal life that is found only in Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel. Paul hasn't kept the faith in some vague way. No, he has kept the faith. Or to use those magnificent words in the book of Revelation, Paul has overcome He's overcome. In a letter all about fighting the fight of the faith, 
The author of Hebrews writes this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And later on in that same letter, the author, sounding very much like Paul here, says, Since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus made this same point many times. He taught us that there is not being saved is not simply a matter of professing faith, but of those who persist in faith who are saved. Jesus predicts that many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, but he will not own them. In other passages, he warns that some will initially receive the seed of the gospel and even make a profession of faith. But as Hebrews 3 says, we have come to share in Christ only if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And that's what verse 12 is about. That's what it means to fight the good fight of the faith. The truth of God is something that must be fought for, something we must take hold of. That being said, please notice, and don't miss this, in both Hebrews 3, which I just quoted, and Jesus' teaching and all throughout the Bible, it's not, it's not that we in our own strength persist in the faith. This isn't a battle where we win on our own. Rather, what does Hebrews 3 say? If we have come to share in Christ, then we will persevere. Perseverance, winning the race, is a work of God in us. It is because we share in Christ that we persevere. God alone guarantees the outcome. He promises to hold us in his hand even when the world is shaking us violently. Christ ensures that none whom the Father has given from him, to him will fall away. So this is never based on our own strength alone. Nevertheless, it is a command we must take seriously. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. One well-recognized Pauline theologian puts it this way, quote, recognizing, recognizing that God is the one who supplies the strength to work does not detract from the force of the command. Indeed, it supplies the basis on which it can be carried out. God's work does not cancel our work. God's work establishes and secures our work. Or to see it in a different way, if you've studied Christian history, you'll know that many of the great missionaries that first left the United States, most, almost really all of them were reformed. In other words, they believed in election. So why did they go to the nations? If they believed that everyone God chose would ultimately be saved, why did they risk so much? Why did so many of them die? Some of their names are still recorded on plaques at Princeton, not from here, far from here, because so many of them died on the mission field going. Why did they go if they believed that after all it was God's work? Well, you see, we have it turned around. That's what they would say to us. We have it all twisted around. The reason you go is because you believe that God is working. 
And in the same way, the very reason we should go to fight, the very reason we should fight to hold the faith, to share the faith, and whatever else God has called us to do, is in the confidence that the battle has already been won by Christ, and that it is God who fights with us and in us. And so the fight is taken to our personal life. It's taken to our confession of faith. Lastly, this struggle will come to our public witness, the witness we give to the watching world. 20 years ago in this country, I could have preached this last point, and I don't think it would have sounded the same, but now it means more. Our faith must be openly confessed before the world. It must stand gently, patiently, but persistently in front of their abuse and even their persecution. We must do this wisely at the right time, but it cannot be avoided forever. Paul seems here at the end of his charge to Timothy to anticipate that Timothy will find himself before a magistrate on trial for his faith. And so he writes verses 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God, the throne room of God, who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words, I charge you, are words we have seen before in this letter. They remind us that Timothy, like all faithful elders in the church, is a man with authority, but also under authority. He is under orders, and he must fulfill those orders and that command. In 1 Timothy, that term command is used three other times, and in each time it means his whole ministry, his whole calling. It is his obedience to the apostolic mission that has been given to him. Timothy is what theologians have called an apostolic delegate. Much like Titus, he comes with direct orders from the Apostle Paul. It is widely believed, we can't confirm this for sure, but it's widely believed that this is the office in the New Testament that is called evangelist or one sent, a type of elder who has been sent with direct apostolic authority. This then is Timothy's final battlefield. That is his public ministry. Timothy is to guard the purity of his entire ministry until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be done, verse 15, without spot that is unstained. And it must also be done without reproach. You might remember when we studied chapter 3 of this letter that the overarching requirement for elders and deacons is that they be above reproach. That same word is used here. Timothy is to fulfill his public ministry before the church and before the world without reproach. That is, without scandal, without unnecessary controversy, and without personal disgrace. To bring all this home with incredible power, Paul invokes once again the presence of God, the one who gives life. In doing that, maybe he was, as Chrysostom believed, subtly reminding Timothy that God had the power even to raise him from the dead should his public ministry lead to his death. 
Added to that, Paul gives the image of Jesus before Pilate. Jesus's unwillingness to lie to Pilate led directly to his death. Jesus kept his ministry pure, spotless, and he made the good confession. And so Peter says to the church in 2 Peter, but according to his promise, we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This was the final battlefield for Timothy. His public witness, his public ministry, the command kept pure. According to Hebrews chapter 13, Timothy was imprisoned, although released initially. But we can be sure that his public ministry was one of constant persecution and trial. So you see, brothers and sisters, Calvin was right. We are being trained to fight. The fight is in our daily lives and our most intimate moments. At every moment, we are being trained to flee sin and pursue all that is good. But the fight is also in our head and in our heart. Our personal confession of Christ, our faith in him, our holding fast to the gospel. This is the good fight of the faith. And finally, at some level, each of us, for each of us, that faith must be confessed. Whether before Pontius Pilate or some other person, we will be asked in one way or another, are not you also one of his disciples? The fight is intense. It is exhausting. If Timothy, profoundly gifted as he was, needed all of these encouragements throughout this letter, what chance do we have? More specifically, what chance does any pastor have today? Calvin, on preaching on this passage, says that these constant warnings and charges that we find all through this letter remind us and are a reminder that very few men finish ministry well. Few keep the command unstained till the end. And if we're honest, we all come to this place each week, pastors, elders, deacons, people. We all come to this place each week feeling half defeated, at least. Some of us may even be ready to desert altogether. What could possibly rally us to another week, let alone a lifetime of ceaseless battle with the flesh, the world, and the devil? Paul gives the answer. Paul lays the answer before us in verses 15 and 16. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We've won, and we're going to keep winning, because this is the one who is with us. Even our losses, Romans tells us, even our losses will turn out for our good. Yes, and all things must work together for our good because this is our God. Luther, who was no stranger to battles and was probably the most wanted and hunted man in the history of his times, at least, wrote these famous words. 
did we in our own strength confide. Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord of armies or Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And here's our hope. He must win the battle. I know it sounds strange, but today, let me say to you, fight because you've already won in him. Take hold of what he has already given you. Work out your own salvation because it is he who works in you and with you. It is a good fight. It's a good fight because God is in it with us. It's a good fight because we know the ending. And it's a good fight because the reward is guaranteed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through this service of worship and through the preaching of your word, your people now have been rallied once again to go into battle against the flesh, against their own heart, against the devil and against the world. Strengthen us in the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Help us spiritually to see our Savior pass by upon his horse in his victory. And on his thigh is written, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is one and he will win. Help your people to cheer him as he passes by and to find new energy and new strength for the battle. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.